Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie making process. Hosted by my buddy. Wherever he goes, I go too. Now let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Turbo Rush Energy Drink. Get your juices flowing with the drink that'll knock your socks off with Turbo Rush. Welcome everyone to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, um, actors, writers. Um, I'm a full-time writer-director and for a little over 10 years now, which is crazy. Um, and we try to bring all the stuff. You're a musician. Uh, we try to bring all of that as part of film analysis, like pulling it apart and seeing, you know, a little bit behind the curtains or at least our perception of what's happening behind the, the curtains, uh, which is far more fun than just kind of, I'm, I wasn't really the kid who opened the math book and got my problems for, for the week and just went to the back and just grabbed the answers. I wasn't that kid. I wanted to solve it myself as nerdy as that may sound. I wanted to know that I could do it. And so sometimes you get it wrong or sometimes you get it right for all the wrong reasons, which was a lot of my solving methods. To be honest, I got in trouble uh, in calculus for that. It was fun, you know, doing this. And one of the, the crazy things that I've really begun to appreciate is our listeners are probably smarter than we are. <laughs> like they're film buffs. Like we have a lot of really yeah. smart listeners um, and a really wide, you know, audience. Probably half our audience is actually uh, women. And I find that, you know, really cool. And hopefully that speaks well of us. Hopefully, first and foremost, that, you know, it's a good show and that people uh, find it at some level entertaining, hopefully informative, um, and maybe in on a, you know, secondary, third, you know, some other tertiary level that we're also hopefully, you know, very respectful in how we carry ourselves. And, you know, we, we don't, we don't say too many stupid things, although we do try to squeeze a few in because we are humans, but despite having so many women listeners, we do not have any women in the movie we're covering today, man. No, we do not. Uh, so today we are covering Reservoir Dogs, uh, the uh, seminal film from Quentin Tarantino. So if you have not seen this film, please pause the episode and go watch it or we are going to ruin a lot of important stuff. For sure. We'll look at some of the cinematography and camera work. Definitely look at some of the story and writing, single location filmmaking, um, skipping the robbery and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. When a simple jewelry heist goes horribly wrong, the surviving criminals begin to suspect that one of them is a police informant. It's directed by Quentin Tarantino, screenplay by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery, cinematography by Andrej Sekula, sure, featuring Harvey Keitel as Mr. White, Tim Roth as Mr. Orange, Michael Madsen as Mr. Blonde, Chris Penn as Nice Guy Eddie, Steve Buscemi as Mr. Pink, and Lawrence Tierney as Joe. I swear to God, I think I'm fucking jinxed. What? Two jumps back, it was a four-man job. I discovered one of the team was an undercover cop. Oh, shit. Thank God we discovered time. I forget the whole thing, just walk the fuck away from me. So who's the rat this time? Mr. Blue? Mr. Brown? <laughs> Joe? You know, listen, I mean, Joe set this whole thing up. Maybe he set it up to sell nah, it. I don't buy it. 
Me and Joe go back a long time. I can tell you definitely, Joe didn't know a fucking thing about this bullshit. Hey, look, I've known Joe since I was a kid, okay? And me saying he definitely had nothing to do with it is ridiculous. I mean, I can say I definitely didn't do it because I know what I did or I didn't do. But I cannot definitely say that about anybody else because I don't definitely know. For all I know, you're the rat. For all I know, you're the fucking rat. <laughs> all right, now you're using your fucking head. I mean, for all we know, he's the rat. Hey. That kid in there is dying from a fucking bullet I saw him take. So don't you be calling him a rat. Look, I'm right, okay? Somebody's a fucking rat. So this is, a, you know, his coming out party um, for sure. And paved the way for so many other films. Um, you know, just a pretty legendary career at this point for Tarantino. And I'm, I'm curious, after watching so many other films, right? You know, Pulp Fiction... We've covered Hateful Eight. He's just got a laundry list of incredible work. What does it feel like going back to the start and, and watching Reservoir Dogs? Do you see the pieces? Does it feel as fresh as it probably did? I didn't see this when it came out. I saw this as an adult. Um, mm-hmm. But what's that experience like go, going back and watching Reservoir Dogs? So it's it's really cool because to me, I can see the genius of Tarantino right here. And, 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 and I I think most people, most people can probably, I think it's, it's one of those movies that you can tell was like a labor of love, right? Where it's like, okay, I don't have a lot, but what I do have is what I know and understand, which is relationships between characters, motivations between characters and, and simplicity, right? So keep it simple, stupid, but mix it up like spaghetti. Right. And that's what it feels like has been his whole career, which is like, take some, like, we're going to, here's a simple idea, but we're going to mix it up and make it feel complex, even though it's pretty simple. You know, you have a, you have a group of guys who are going to perform a heist, the heist goes wrong and there's a rat, right? That's, there's a lot of stories that are like that. Right. But with, let's make it simple, keep it, pretty much in one place. I mean, there's, there's a few scenes in other places, but whatever, but keep it pretty much in one place and let it be about the interactions and motivations of the characters between each other, right? From the very beginning, from the opening shot, you know, like, which is such a amazing, it's, so, it's, it's amazing, right? I, I mean, I do think that, that, you know, at times the dialogue is a little dated, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but it doesn't, it doesn't bother me because I just love the acting so much. Uh, I, I think it's, it's so fun. And even though it might feel like some of the lines might feel cheesy or, or a little old, I also think that that's part of his style too. Mm-hmm. I think he's never really deviated from that. I, I mean, if you, if you watch Pulp Fiction or you watch Inglorious Bastards or there's always, there are always a, f- a couple of almost cringeworthy lines that you're thinking, you're thinking, really? Did you really just say that? I mean, why not? You know, people say th- stupid or weird things all the time, you know, like, so why wouldn't they say some weird thing in, in a specific moment, you know, that would call for a weird thing being said? I know that uh, he's pretty stringent on on the script, right? And he wants his, his actors to, like, stick to the script pretty much unless an actor has a better suggestion or something happens in a moment or something like that or whatever. But I could feel the filmmaking. I could mm. feel, like, these moments kind of, like, coming alive, that didn't feel like they were on a page, you know, there were, there were some moments where there was like, Oh, Oh, one in particular, the door to the warehouse happens to swing open. 
And who who was it? It was uh, was it Mr. Mr. White? Mr. White goes over and uh, fast guy Eddie follows him, <laughs> follows him, to, and he closes the door and he comes back. I don't think that was part of. I don't think it was part of it. You know, the part of like I don't think it was in the script. I, I think is what I'm saying, but that says a lot about the actors. To okay, what would Mr. White? Do? Yeah, of course he would walk over and close the door. We're not just going to have this yelling conversation you know, with an open door to a warehouse after we just, you know, did a a heist, I'm going to close the door. Right. Of course I would be followed to do that, you know? And of course, uh, uh, who is it? Um, Mr. Blonde, Ms. Blonde just stays sitting up there on the, on the truck or whatever. And, and yeah, of course all those things. Right. And what's funny is if, if it was kind of an accident, uh, he went out of his way to include it because there's a reverse angle where they cut from the other side of the room where they're still walking back from having closed the door. And so yes. if it wasn't an accident, yeah. he kept it. He was like, Oh, that was great. Let's just get now. Let's get the other end, the, yeah. the other side of that. If you walking right. back, yeah. that's, I mean, and whether it was in the script or not, I don't know. But the point is, is that it felt real. It felt mm-hmm. natural. It felt like, like, you know, not everything goes right. The door swinging open by accident is one of those things. It's just, it 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 it's perfect to keep it because it heightens the the mess that is this what's going on right uh yeah anyway i so yeah to to me i really loved it i thought it was there were some really great choices uh the 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 ear dismemberment uh, like the panning away from the ear dismemberment i thought was cuz i know that they got that shot they actually got a reverse of that shot really? of him actually cutting the ear off yeah i've seen it and it's brutal. It's brutal. Ooh. But but um, his choice to not show that I thought was really strong because then it's that kind of movie. And it, I think, is more impactful in your own mind. It's like reading a book. We've talked about this on the podcast before. You know, if you read a book, a lot of times it is more visual uh, or visceral sometimes than the movie because the movie just gives it to you. But the book, your mind can go to way farther places, you know, than, than what a movie is showing you. Right. Or a bunch of different places. Right. So you could, it could tell Mm -hmm. you something's happening and you could see in your mind three different versions of it. So now you've experienced it three times rather than just once that's been, been fed to you. And he's aware of that even in his young career. And he, and so he doesn't give that to you. He allows you to, digest it and then he shows it to you later right you know the makeup we see on that the, ear is amazing the, yes oh my gosh whoever did that is incredible <laughs> and uh i mean it, it, mr orange is the one shot yeah i, I get them all mixed yeah. mixed up yeah. right mr orange is the one shot um, miss, his acting after he shot in the back of the car is unbelievable i mean the whole time you know, he's just in such writhing pain and that's that's very much what i've you know come to it, know in reality what it would be like being shot in the stomach is 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 reportedly i've never been uh one of the worst pains that you could you could have it's just you just slowly 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 dying and his his whole his whole acting throughout that that entire thing and then towards the end where he's just you know kind of he's not in pain anymore he's just kind of floating there was really brilliant buscemi is fantastic just (laughs) I mean, I I really think Buscemi's career is based off of this <laughs> yeah. performance. It's just so him, and in so, so many great ways. And then on, like I don't, I haven't 
followed Chris Penn's work, but I love him in this movie. I th- I think he's solid. I mean, there's there's that one weird scene with him and um, uh, Mr. Blonde, I guess it is, when they meet up in his dad's office and they're wrestling and stuff. It's like super cheesy and weird. And I'm just like, okay, I buy this now because I know Tarantino and that's maybe some weird thing that he would do. But if I had never seen a Tarantino film and I see this, I don't know. It's kind of... Well, what's funny about that scene and most of this movie, frankly, is the 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 normal adage of screenwriting is to start the scene as late as possible and get out as early as possible and this movie okay. basically breaks all of that yeah. uh it's like no instead we're just going to sit in a scene and let it play out and so from Mr. Orange bleeding in the back seat to that sequence because there's a like four or five times you could have jumped out of that that little back and forth that they're having from how they say hello to him taking digs and you can feel Mr. Blonde starting to get a little irritated. Um, that whole scene, I mean, just eats up so much space. Uh, and I keep waiting for the scene to move on and it does not, it just yeah. keeps hanging on. Yeah. And this whole movie is like, it's full of those kinds of moments and it's, it's interesting, but yeah, I agree. Like I, that scene is a, is a, is a really, it, I think it serves its purpose, right? Cause later in the film, that moment is pivotal to, believing you know nice guy eddie when he says that guy i trust that guy. i know that guy that guy would never uh do what you're you're accusing him of doing right that triggers the whole end of the film um and i feel like that scene sticks in our mind that much easier because of how weird it is <laughs> yes yes and how and long and like anyway yeah so for me i love tarantino i love almost everything he does because I feel like he's fearless. I feel like he just makes what he wants to make the way he wants to make it. And I, I love that. You know, I think some of our favorite um, filmmakers do that kind of thing. You know, I mean, Wong Kar Wai is a good example or Nolan, you know, like they, they just have this idea. They have an idea of how they want it, want to make it and the feeling that they want to come across. And then they just do it. They find a way to do it. And Tar- but but Tarantino is different because I also relate to simple simple films, right? Like the more basic it is for me, a lot of times the more I feel like I can relate to it. I'm not I'm not trying to it's not trying to do something that nobody else has done before, right? It's just trying to experience a, a, a feeling and. You know, in the back of the car when he's bleeding and we don't cut away and we're there the whole time. I mean, I'm just like begging to cut away. I don't want to see him in pain anymore. Or when he's laying, when they get to the to the warehouse and he's laying down there and he's just like begging him, can you hold me? You know, like I want to cut away. I want him to when he passes out, I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, like there's this feeling that he gives you without doing seven different locations and and having 14 different people talking, it's it's really, you know, uh, Buscemi and Keitel and and Tim Roth. It's really those three guys for like the first several minutes of the film. And you kind of realize between those three, oh, this is the kind of movie this is going to be. This is this is our home, you know, yeah. kind of like how we talked about last week when we did my my um, Blueberry Nights. This is our home. OK. All right. We spent a lot of time here. 
anyway, I, I really love it. I really enjoyed it. I've seen this movie several times now, I think probably like four times now. And, and I enjoy it every time because I love Tarantino and I love his fearlessness. And um, I think he's super creative and can do a lot with a little because he um, really understands relationship between characters and, mm. and can write that. Right. That's the other thing. Like he's not just a director. He's a actor. He's a writer. Uh, you know, he's a producer. Right. He, he can do all of that. And and he does that. I mean, you know, he's in the film. Right. And he does a pretty good job, I think. And he just understands the relationship. Like, I feel like a, the relationship between Mr. White and Mr. Orange is a little like it feels to me like like a father son kind of relationship where like, you know, he wants to help him really badly, but he can't. Right. He can't do anything and he feels helpless, you know, and the only time he can really do anything or he finally he does something at the end where he's like, I'm going to defend this guy, you know, but Mm -hmm. but Mr. Orange is definitely looking at him like, like, please save me, father. Right. Or please save me. Maybe it could have been anybody else, but Harvey Keitel has this kind of he has this way of being like a father figure or being like the most badass motherfucker <laughs> that you don't want to mess with. You know, it just depends on what Tarantino film you're in. You know, if you're in Pulp Fiction, you don't want to mess with this guy, you know, no matter what. But even then, he's got this kind of like father figure feel to him that he that he allows to come out, you know. So anyway, I loved it. I, I think it's, it's, you know, especially for, when was it, 92? Yeah, I want to say this came out in 92. That's, that's crazy. That's great. That's crazy for 1992. Like, come on. What other bullshit was being made in 1992, you know? (laughs) Like, and then you've got this. This is great. Like, anything that takes cinema and pushes it forward in a way that that is a little bit different, you know? I mean, I think this movie is kind of based off of another film, but just like a section of another film. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember what it was. But I, I saw an interview with Tarantino where he was just, he was saying, yeah, there's the end of this film. And he said the film, and I can't think of it. But he said, he said, I just wanted to take that moment and turn it into an entire entire film. And that's what he did. Like and that's cool. Like what's what's the the thought of that is like something simple like this one moment as an entire story. Like that's a great idea no matter what it is. You know, you could probably our discussion. There's probably a movie in there somewhere of of Oh, for sure. You know? And even within this movie, I looked at, you know, watching it, you know, for the first time in several years. Uh, there's this the moment when it looks like Mr. Blonde is about to burn alive that cop. And then suddenly Mr. Orange pops up. I forgot. Blazes him down. That's a yeah, I I kept waiting. I was like, wait, does he burn him to death? I couldn't remember. And, you know, Mr. Orange popping up like that. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. He's not dead. He's just been so still for so long. There's another famous horror franchise that started its uh, its whole series based on the idea that the guy you think is, you know, sitting there dead the whole time isn't actually dead. Um, and I feel like it took, they did the same thing Tarantino did with this movie. They said, Oh, I like that. I like that moment. I'm going to turn that into a whole movie. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Whole series of movies, a whole series of movies. Right. And it's just a genius uh, idea to look at a film that way and say, Oh man, this moment gave me something. Uh, I wonder what an entire film around this uh, would feel like. What would that look like? How would you build that out? And yeah, I, I agree, especially, you know, you know, you're talking about the 
feeling of the film is largely revolving around those three, you know, characters, Keitel, Roth, and Madsen, um, playing Mr. White, Mr. Orange, Mr. Blonde, and Mr. Pink. Like that's your, that's, you know, the bulk of the film. And I think it helps with opening on that diner scene, right? They're all at breakfast and they're telling jokes. It's very light. And then when you strip away Quentin Tarantino from the group, right? Mr. Brown dies off screen and now the comedic relief is gone and the rest of the film is just people, you know, uh, at loggerheads the entire time um, because you have some nice small conflict right at the at the breakfast table between Mr. Pink and virtually everyone, right? Mr. Pink and Mr. White um, get into it about tipping. Uh, Mr. Blonde keeps making this joke about, do you want me to shoot this guy, right? And he's talking about Mr. White. Um, and so they're kind of lightly hinting at, you know, all the main characters who are really going to be getting into it uh, right off the bat. And of course, in the breakfast scene, Mr. Orange is basically dead quiet. He has like one or two lines um, because, you know, he's 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 mafia. He's he's a bad guy um, in this group. He's the villain. Uh, and that's just a really fun way to set up everyone, set up the dynamics um, and then later press on it uh, as the as the film goes on. And it is brilliant. Like I'll get into my my small reservations uh, later and they're small depending on who who you are watching this movie but the uh the the whole single location filmmaking thing is really funny because it's not really a single location film but everyone every filmmaker that i ever talked to about this movie all kind of come at it from that approach they all think of it because in your memory it all takes place in the warehouse because that's kind of the real time aspect everything in real time is in the warehouse everything else is a flashback Real time. Um, That's why. Okay. You know, and so anytime you're there, you're like, oh, okay, we're back now. All that other stuff is just, you know, the the context. Um, it's not what's really happening. Uh, and it's just genius because, but it, if you're a filmmaker and you're looking at how to make a single location movie like, like Reservoir Dogs, well, step one is get way more than one location. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Because exactly. You have two diners, right? The opening scene and then uh, the the undercover meeting with his yep. boss, I'm assuming, is who that is. And you have multiple cars, right? But that's cheap. The diners are not. Di- but in some sense, diners can be cheap. Um, we will get into it at the at the end of this episode. But we recreated the, the diner scene in Reservoir Dogs. Um, and I'll detail all of that later. But I had to go and find a diner. And... It actually wasn't that hard. Um, if you're in a decently sized city with, you know, a lot of mom and pop shops, then you could probably find someone to let you borrow their diner for a few hours. Uh, and certainly if you're dealing with, I'm assuming this was a $1.5 million budget uh, for Res Dogs. But if you have that kind of budget, it shouldn't cost you more than a few grand to go shoot in, you know, a, in even if you don't have that, I had zero, we had zero production budget. We're able to, you know, just go and talk and have options. I had multiple people. Um, one of them, God, one of the locations that was open is a place called Phoebe's diner. And that was recently rated as like the number one diner in America by some, oh notable, I forget who, who did it. Uh, if it was like eater or some, but it was like a, a pretty well-known, it wasn't like Bob's, you know, Bob's favorite diners on like Blogspot. It was was like a real place, a real place. And, you know, they were really gracious. They opened it up to us. And ultimately I was like, I, I 
don't think it'll quite work here, even though it's like a beautiful spot and really good food. Go check, go check out PB's Diner. Yes, <laughs> this episode is sponsored right. by PB's Diner. <laughs> uh, but we 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 found so many other options, and if if you're a no budget filmmaker, man, if you just go have conversations with people, like yeah, this they 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 had a real budget, but you could probably get one or two diners that if you were making Reservoir Dogs on a on a real like no budget kind of basis. Um, because so you have a couple diners, you have multiple cars, right? You have friends, you have your own cars, you can find cars. That's very cheap. There's a street chase streets are everywhere. <laughs> like you can go find a street to shoot on. <laughs> now they probably blocked it off. They got permits because it looked like they were, you know, doing stunts on the street and you can't do squibs you know on in broad daylight like yeah. you might have an armed citizen or a cop nearby who wants to jump into the mix and like hey not on my watch <laughs> you know? yeah. so, so don't do that uh but we you and i film projects on open streets all the time just got to know what the laws are in your street in your city uh in austin you can't have gear um set up but you can go handheld and that's completely legal uh and so i don't know what it is in other cities maybe you can set up tripods in other other places i don't know um so sit shooting in streets is fine they they shoot a bunch of joe's office that could be any office in the world all you need to do is find one with a decent desk and then stock it full of books and whatever else to make it look like a mob boss um, or whatever he's supposed to be they shoot on a rooftop I'm sorry, that's pretty easy. You and I have, one of our first projects was on the rooftop. We looked at several places. There were a lot of rooftop options until we found the right one. Um, so that's not that expensive. They shoot in an apartment. Uh, half your contacts have apartments. See who will let you shoot in there for, you know, three hours. There's a graffiti wall sequence uh, between him and his other undercover buddy or his boss, uh, Mr. Orange's boss. Uh, that one's probably a little trickier, but... Once you find it, it's more a matter of safety, uh, depending on where you're at. Uh, there's a really cool graffiti park here in Austin um, that people I would love to shoot. at. I looked at shooting there, actually, and it was just not safe. Um, a lot of uh, riffraff around there. And you want to make sure your cast and crew feel safe wherever you're wherever you're shooting. So for them, they probably had a budget to go have like some kind of escort. Assuming it was, I don't know what part of LA they were shooting in, but uh, it probably wasn't that bad. And then they have like, I think maybe the hardest one was a bathroom. They have the warehouse, of course, that's going to be where most of your location money is going to. Uh, and they have the, the bathroom within the warehouse. I assume it may not have been, but they have this other really huge bathroom that they shoot with the cops, right? That flashback story that turned the flashback that turns into uh, a fake flashback <laughs> yeah. of scott uh, cops telling a fake flashback story <laughs> so it's, mm -hmm. it's very inception going on in this but that location probably was a pain in the ass to find because you want a nice big one with all these urinals feels like a truck stop maybe or i don't know what else it would have been um some kind of public you know restroom situation and that's it i mean that's probably the hardest one outside the the whatchamacallit, the, the warehouse itself, uh, to mm -hmm. source, but the diners, a lot of just the bar. He know, tells that story in, right. The club, there is a club, um, mm -hmm. that, that would probably be a, a potential tough one, but maybe not because a lot of clubs yeah. are closed in the, in the day. Yep. And it's just like, Hey, let's talk to 10 club owners and see who will let us shoot in the middle of the day. Uh, you know, at 8am 
uh, and, yep. and deck it out however you want. Probably don't have to do too much if you're a low budget filmmaker. I'm sure they did their own thing in there, but if you don't have money for that, whatever, just go in there and say, uh, Hey, can you turn on the, the DJ lights and in the background and we'll set up a few keynotes and we're good to go. Um, yep. yeah. So I, I joke about, you know, they get more than one location, but the locations that they did pick are not outrageous. You know, they're not, they're not doing anything wild other than, uh, the, the stunts, the stunts are where you really get, you know, in, into trouble, but otherwise this is pretty manageable on a low budget. Any thoughts or addendums on low budget <laughs> filmmaking? No, not, not really. I mean, I think that I, the other thing is that these locations serve the story. You know, that's the other thing is that you could technically, you could technically probably tell this story without those locations, you know, mm. but it, it strengthens it because we have context and we have some kind of exposition without, for the sake of expo- exposition. It's just, it's, it's all, it's all provided in a, in a way that's, that serves the story. And I think as long as you're looking at another location as, is this necessary, you know, and does this strengthen the story, then, then, then yeah. And look, you know, as a, as a, an indie filmmaker, you're already scrappy, you know, you, you already, you know, squeeze water from stones every single day. Like that's kind of what you do. Hey, actors show up to set with your own clothes and bring me multiple options. (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. Oh, and hair and hair and makeup ready. Right. You know, (laughs) like, like, yeah, of course, you know, like it's this locations is just another thing. It's, I think probably I would imagine the way to be to become successful at pretty much anything in life is like probably 80% your relationship with people or like how how you can develop relationships with people how can you talk to new people you know how can you say who you are and what you do in a way that excites other people and i mean it i think it's easy to do when you're excited yourself like you know you go, if if you're trying to find a, a a a diner location like how did you do it like what was the first thing you did you know i assume you you found the person that you needed to talk to by talking to some other people, mm-hmm. right? And then when you t- you have a chance to talk to that person, like like listen, we have this great idea. What we want to do is we want to remake this diner scene of Reservoir Dogs with old women. I'm telling it's it's awesome. It's it's going to be amazing. We just need we just need a diner, obviously, and this place is perfect. You know, for a couple of hours. What do you say? You know, like. I don't know. I would love, I, I want to hear that story actually. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's all about relationship and being able to convey something in a way that is actually exciting to, you know, to someone at that location, right? That why are they, what is in it for them? Right. Cause everybody's motivated by what's going to be in it for them. Everybody, no matter what, you know, or if they're not in motivated by what is going to be in it for them, they're going to be motivated by how is this going to impact them negatively? And so if True. you can, I, if you can either, either, you know, mitigate or erase any kind of negative, negative, you know, for them first, and then tell them how it, it will benefit them. Now, all of a sudden you have them on their side and you have to look at it from their point of view of, from their point of view, right? Not, not what I want to get out of this, right? but what is this, what is this going to involve with you now? 
So yeah, can you answer that? Like, what was what was that like to find that location? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a lot of people. Um, if you're not familiar, and it's it's a it's a dicey game because if you're not familiar with the filmmaking process, you might either be intimidated by it, um, where you're just like, oh, I don't know uh, if I want Great point. you know a hundred people running. Like you said, it's it becomes like, how could this hurt me? Because in a lot of ways, it's not going to help you, and so you really are relying on you know whatever it is the the saying goes about you know, uh, an angel, you know, to kind of meet you. Yeah. The kindness of strangers. And it's, it's a lot of trying to assure people like, look, we're professionals. Um, we're, we're bringing all our own props, you know, we'll do everything ourselves. We'll leave it better than we found it. Um, we'll give you a, a credit in the film, of course. And, uh, a thank you, uh, if there, and what you try to do as a filmmaker, uh, is always, no matter what, leave a good name for filmmakers for everyone else. It's a communal effort. And if you're not doing that, you're, you know, screw you. You're fucking it up for everyone. Stop being an asshole and stop thinking of yourself and think of other people and do good by other people. If you damage a wall, fix it, pay for it. But more, most importantly, don't damage walls. Don't damage floors, especially floors. That's where the, that's what really gets it. And it's what really scares off uh, homeowners and business owners is you bring in your gear and you don't set up uh, any padding underneath or uh, you don't think about some gear just doesn't have rubber grips on the bottom. Uh, and if they don't, you need to think about that and either not bring it, um, choose a different C-stand or bring up you know your own rugs. And so a lot of it is just creating a good reputation because that stuff gets around in the business community. They meet each other. They know each other. Um, and if they hear one bad story, I'm not letting one into my business. This is my livelihood. Why would I risk my livelihood so that, uh, you can maybe be a jackass in my business. And so I think step one is just leave places better than you found it and be well communicated. Send all the signals that you are trustworthy as humanly possible. Be that guy that over communicates and goes above and beyond. Uh, we try to give people gifts as a thank you. Like, oh, what what are you into? Oh, you like wine? Man, I have this great bottle of wine I picked up in Fredericksburg. It's uh, it's my favorite wine. Here, treat, just do the simple, obvious stuff. Create a good communal atmosphere. So that's, that's number one. And so I try to make sure whenever I'm communicating with people that I'm always doing that. But it is very much what you said. Like I go in, I'm like, oh, I tour around and I'm looking for the right location. And so I'll just pop in a lot of restaurants, uh, starting with Yelp. You know, there's a lot of pictures on Yelp. I'm like, oh, this has the texture that I want. Uh, and then maybe I'll go, I'll make a list. Like I, I spent, you know, a week or two, uh, going through like 30 or 40 options on my list. So I just built a big list, uh, of businesses that I scrubbed through online built a big list and then would spend a day or two popping around looking at them. And if there's one that I liked, I, I talked to the host if there was one or a waitress or a waiter if there wasn't, um, you know, talk to the servers, talk to the cooks, whoever's at hand and say, hey, is, uh, is, is the manager around? I'd, I'd love to ask them uh, about maybe using this location as a, as, uh, for a film. Um, and then they'll put you in touch. If not, they'll say, oh, no, who you want to talk to is these people. Um, and they'll give you a name and a phone number or email. And then you reach out to them. It's a long game. Like you, you go through a lot of no's because a lot of people are like, nope. And that's that. Like we were working on our last film, <laughs> uh, to, that was just a busker sitting outside of a business. I wasn't even trying to get inside of a business. <laughs> I was trying to stand out 
front of one. Uh, and the, the property manager wouldn't even listen to the pitch. Wouldn't like, it was just no. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I understand your concern. Here's, uh, is there anything I can do? Like maybe a deposit fee I can, you know, get insurance, uh, happy to provide X, Y, Z. And they came back and just, they were kind of an asshole. They were just like, the answer is no. And that was the entire exchange. I was like, cool. Everything in you wants to like go guns firing right back at them. But again, it's a community effort. I don't want to ruin it for someone else because maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're just busy and they don't see it as them being curt to them. They were just like, Hey, I'm, I don't have time for this. I have a thousand other things because I'm running a business, Wes. I, I, I'm not running a Wes, you know, uh, concierge service. And so you have to remember from their perspective what they're dealing with and don't make something that hurts your feelings worse. It can always get mm. worse um, because mm. for all you know, now they have my contact info. What if they want to ruin my name around the business community? Don't do it. Uh, so in every way possible, you know, be kind to strangers as much as you're hoping for the kindness of strangers to help you uh, take that mm -hmm. into account. And so, yeah, after getting a, a few in contact with several owners, I was able to get some options. And it was just a matter of doing what you could to, to mitigate uh, their potential. And then it's scheduling. Oh, man, I had to do a lot yeah. of producing for that thing that I was really trying to avoid. Uh, doing, but I'm really happy. Uh, it, it was fun. I'm glad I did uh, because uh, and we'll get into that. But yeah, yeah, it, it was very much what you were saying, like one step at a time. And and also, it's it's okay if it's a no, right? Because like mm -hmm. for example, the shot, the short film we shot, that location was fantastic. It turned out to me, yeah. I think, way better, way better than where it would have been. Right. Agreed. Way, way better, way better for the story. I think way better for the ambiance, the sound way better for the, 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 the background, like mm -hmm. the whole situation was, was great. So a no, isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. It could know? be your gift. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. My, my hesitation with the place we ended up filming was I wasn't sure if we were going to get a lot of riffraff because we're right mm -hmm. there in, in the middle of downtown, a lot of traffic. Um, so it's just hard to know if, Someone's going to yeah. set up across the street with a boombox. Like, you know, we have a lot of pedicabs and we, we still got some, but no one, act, it was just amazing. Like that really worked out in our favor to your point. It was the gift that I, we needed. I was just hesitant to, to lean into, but sure. Grateful that sure. we did. Yeah. The, the fun thing about this movie though, Reservoir Dogs, um, is it does take place in a warehouse. And what's interesting about it is we skip the action, right? We skip the robbery. And doing that is really fascinating because it provides all the dramatic irony. If we had, if we had actually been at the robbery, we would know everything there is to know. And that's where all the dramatic irony of, oh, the audience knows something that the characters don't. And there's a lot of great uses for that. But this film instead says, no, we're going to stay with the characters. And as they try to figure out what happened, uh, we're going to be in their shoes with them, trying to understand and piece it all together. Right. And that makes it messy. This movie becomes very messy, very paranoid driven. And it also goes to your point about off-screen violence, right? You, we don't see the ear get cut off, right? Instead, we pan over, we listen to the struggle. And as, as you pointed out, it's much more violent in our heads, even though we could have watched the violence. Hearing it, you squirm because we've already cut away. You can't get away from it still. <laughs> like it's so brutal. Um, but it, it, what it's doing, the entire movie is doing that, though. It's building the entire world in our imagination. Uh, we keep hearing about the robbery, right? There's blood and bullets everywhere. Where's Brown? He's dead. What about Blue? Dead. 
right? We keep hearing about everything that we didn't see. We're trying to piece it together and intercutting all these flashbacks out of sequence further makes it messier, right? It creates a sense of depth and a story that's very straightforward. And it's making us piece it all together in our head. Uh, and, and it just builds it out. Like the flashback to Pink as he's talking about how he got away. He's like, guns blazing, man. Uh, whenever I saw the, the stuff hit the fan, I, I was running. I started firing. And then we cut back uh, to Pink running down the street. Cops behind him. And they're trying to get a clear shot and clear people out of the way, right? That little tiny flashback adds scale to the world. Suddenly, the robbery is tangible. It's a real thing that happened. It's not just this uh, cheap one-act play kind of scam, right? It's like, no, no, no. Uh, and then there's that great moment whenever uh, he gets hit by the car and he pulls the lady out um, and he's about to get in and the cops get turning the corner and he just starts lighting them up. What a great mm -hmm. sequence because uh, a lot of films, you kind of reserve your guns, gunfire, right? Oh, I only have... Uh, eight bullets in the gun so i'm I'm only gonna shoot bang bang he just rips and it's just beautiful and it's hectic uh and that chaos in that moment is so good uh I, well, I love and it. if i if i could point out too real quick just to add on to the the running scene for mr pink mm -hmm. that's a that's a great way to avoid needing a bank exactly that's they don't that's the whole point that is the entire point because doing that not shooting in the bank cuts the budget right no bank but also no extras you got to fill it with extras you got to fill it with yep. stunts um mm -hmm. and then you're doing that for multiple days draining your budget yes that is everything you're trying to avoid and instead tarantino leans into it and says not only are we going to save budget but we're going to make the story more exciting by missing the action right missing mr white i guess it is unloading on people like just or randomly shooting people mr yeah. blonde sorry uh just randomly shooting people which they said that he did you know but he he's just like yeah anyway but not showing that right so yeah it's even worse anyway 100 uh what a great way to turn your achilles heel into your greatest strength just just genius last couple notes are yeah uh cinematography really step printing title mm -hmm. sequence Right. I, that's just funny. We've been talking about a lot of step printing lately. Yeah. Um, and normally the stuff that we've been watching is mostly under cranking where you might shoot at like five frames a second, six frames a second. Um, and then, you know, quadruple print each frame to make it stretch out to fill out, you know, the 24 frames per second here. What it looks like he did is shot at that 24 frames per second and then like double printed it in order to turn it into slow motion. So he might have mm -hmm. like turned 24 frames per second into six frames per second. And he turned, used it to create slow motion. And that gave it its own specific effect. Uh, and it's very Reservoir Dogs. Like you see this referenced even in other films. Uh, Swingers, they they use it as a, a homage in one of their transition shots. Uh, other films reference it. And to you and I, it probably looks a little, you know, goofy, but it's specific to this film and it, and it works. It's yeah. How, how would you, so wait, how would you do that? You'd shoot it at 24, you play and it back at like, 60. So and, yeah, what? maybe like 50%. Um, so in, in premiere, okay. you might pull that 24 frames per second and just slow it down to half speed. Oh, okay. So it's a, in a sense, step printing. 
Yeah, because the only way you can but do that right motion. is by yeah. repeating multiple frames um, in order to stretch it out. Okay. That's so confusing. Yeah, it's so weird. Okay, got but, it. Got yeah, it. yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, just to, I guess, elaborate a little bit more on that, if you just imagine one second, right, that's 24 frames mm -hmm. that's taking up one second, you're now like, okay, instead of one second, I want this to last five seconds. Okay, well, now, instead of one frame taking up one frame in 24 frames, you know, mm -hmm. it's one frame will be repeated five times. Gotcha. Because you now want it to last five times longer. Yeah. And then whenever you're playing it back, that's what makes it so choppy. It's because you're sitting right. on one frame longer than you expected. Right. But does that also slow it down? Uh-huh. Because it's in slow motion and it does slow it down. Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, because step printing is one thing or under undercranking is one thing because it's, it's in real time. Right. But undercranking and slow motion is what is what is like difficult for me but yeah that makes sense that yeah makes sense. it's i i've been thinking about this a lot lately and the other thing i i kind of came up with as an example is uh we all used to make really bad uh or at least new people that would make really bad flip books off of like notepad papers right the mm -hmm. sticky note paper and you yep. whatever draw a guy bouncing a ball or whatever and it's the idea of you know if, if you're shooting it one car y style um and you're under cranking it you might have whatever 10 pages on your sticky book uh that's not going to last very long right and you draw 10 specific frames uh and you're like i want this to last longer and so instead i'm going to photocopy them and i'm going to turn these 10 into 100 using these same 10 pictures and now i'm just going to repeat them now you have a big fat stack but mm -hmm. it, it might take a lot longer but you're just not seeing as much motion as much action because you're repeating the same frames um gotcha. so you're, you're doing that same thing except Tarantino, as we've been talking about, said, okay, I have these 24 frames. I I'm, I just want them to last, you know, 10 times longer. And so uh, he took those and yeah, just repeated them, repeated them, photocopied them a bunch of times and stretched mm -hmm. them out. And so it makes it all weird and choppy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is in 92. So it's before mm -hmm. Premiere. So yeah, this, this is using actual film, right? Actual step printing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now it's more of a concept than a practice. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Because it, whenever I get into Premiere, uh, when I when I did our film or if I was going to do an undercrank, uh, I'm really just still doing the same thing of uh, reducing the the, the speed. Uh, and so I cut mine because I shot at six frames per second. And whenever I get it processed by Photochem and they, they scan it, they're sending it back to me in 24 frames. And so it just bloop, it goes really fast and I have to cut it. And say, okay, so now slow this section down to, you know, 25%. And then oh. Premiere will stretch it out for me. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Fun stuff. Uh, the other cinematography stuff, this is basic bitch stuff. Sorry. Uh, low contrast. This is a pretty it's surprising because I, in my mind, this is a high contrast film, but it's actually pretty low contrast. Uh, there's a lot of details in the, in the uh, shadows and a lot of details in the highlights. And it's, really interesting because to me this feels like a high contrast movie where but it makes sense you know thematically when you don't know when it's not clear what who's good and who's bad the difference between good and bad is very gray and so it feels like the intention there is to kind of blur a little bit of who's who because everyone's a suspect nothing's very clear it's not very sharp 
there's not a lot of contrast to provide you with answers. Um, and so, yeah, it's a fairly low contrast film, um, in my opinion, and also provides very sharp contrast for the color that pops up, right? The red really pops out because of how much it contrasts against the, the white shirt and they have these black and white suits. Uh, the interior of the warehouse is very drab, very plain. So that bright red is very vivid, uh, really, really stands out. Uh, just beautiful use of color work um, to, to make it feel bloodier uh, than it is. Yeah. So this feels like he's really inspired by old black and white gangster films. He's like, I'm going to bring that to the, to, to the nineties, except I'm going to add moan flourishes. Uh, so yeah, really well done, man. That's uh, good. The, my, so, so my, what, my, yeah. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to ask what, what your reservations are here. My one reservation is I don't see a need for like the, the, the kind of racist bits. Uh, Oh, thank you. Yeah. Right. Like it just yeah. doesn't make sense in this story. I think he justified it in terms of writing that that's just who these guys would be. And I get that. I, I get that these kind of gangsters in this era uh, probably use the N word judiciously. I that as be that as it may <laughs> like it. Yeah. This is not Django, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the story doesn't need it. It doesn't rely on those ideas. Uh, this isn't a story about race. Uh, in no way does it really make sense to, to use that as fodder, as character fodder. There's a thousand other ways to make us not. I think the intention there is also to provide a rub so that whenever they die in the film, you don't necessarily mind it. It's it's exciting as opposed to heartbreaking um, because there's films where you're rooting for the bad guy and the bad guy dies and you're like, oh, they killed the bad guy. <laughs> um, this isn't that movie. Uh, this this movie, you see everyone die and you're like, oh, that was crazy. Like more, more popcorn. But I think there's a lot of other ways to show that these aren't great people. And he just opted to not do that. Uh, and I'm sure even in 92, that's probably still edgy. I think people look back in time and think that anything before 2018, like all, everything was formidable, uh, permittable. Uh, and that's actually not the case. Like, uh, there was a lot of gripes. I, I know other filmmakers don't like the way he uses the N word, even in films where it does make sense. So I can only imagine what they think in something like Reservoir Dogs, where there are, you know, there's only one black character and, uh, no one's saying that shit to his face. Right. And so, I, I, yeah, I just don't think it was necessary. And, and on the contrary, you're putting off a lot of audience members who are sitting in the audience and now suddenly remembered, oh yeah, there are racist assholes in the world. And this film isn't really addressing it. It's just letting it be what it is. And that sucks. Thanks for a reminder. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, there's also a little bit of uh, lazy writing too, right? Yeah. You can do the same thing with like yeah. more detailed writing. You can make them an asshole without having them say the N word or calling someone Oriental. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's also, and I've talked to, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, who are black and they just, like shrug their shoulders like man it's quentin tarantino what are you gonna do <laughs> like uh but i've also talked to you know black friends that are like yeah screw him i'm i'm never watching this stuff because he does that kind of stuff uh and so mm -hmm. you do it it does come at some price but 
yeah, I think you're right. It, it's a little bit of lazy writing, uh, a, a lot of bit of lazy writing on his part. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe it's also sign of the times. He, the films that he was looking at and referencing, he was like, that's definitely who these guys are. Um, even if they don't say it instead, I'm going to say what they're not saying. Um, whatever. I'm sure he's got a lot of really interesting, insightful stuff, uh, to, to say about that. I just would disagree with it. Uh, and that's <laughs> yeah, that's okay. at, I, I, I would like to hear what that is. Yeah, honestly. Agreed. You know, cause it, I've, I've, I've watched, you know, uh, quite a bit of, you know, conversation on, on Django, right. Cause that mm-hmm. is just all over the place in that film. You know what I mean? Um, and as cringeworthy as that is, like it's, it's much more understandable, right? Like you could see like if Tarantino was black, you could see, okay, I that completely understand why that would be there. Right. But if he was black and he, and, and wrote this, it would still feel weird. It would still feel right. It, 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 like if, a, if Tarantino was black and wrote was reservoir dogs, it would still feel strange to have those words randomly there's like four times we're in set or something five times. And it's just kind of like random. Like why, what's the purpose of that? And I would still feel, yes, it would feel uncomfortable. That word always feels uncomfortable, but it would feel out of place regardless of the, his ethnicity, yeah. the writer's ethnicity. So yeah, yeah it, I don't it just doesn't fit the story. Um, yeah. And we ran into a, that, that problem a little bit uh, in the breakfast scene. Uh, luckily there was no N word, um, in that, in the opening scene, but there is a, a Jew reference and mm-hmm. you know, it's, we, we, we wrestled with it a little bit and ultimately said, okay, look, we're sitting here trying to do an homage. And so I tried to edit his script as little as humanly possible. Um, and we ended up keeping it just because it felt in keeping with what he wrote. Like there's other really outrageous stuff that's said in there. Um, and it's just trying to play in the same sandbox and, and honor his work without, and I just couldn't find a way around getting at what he was trying to get at with that line. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk more about re- directing a Tarantino script uh, here in a few minutes, but yeah. Um, any other thoughts about res dogs? Oh, well, I, I, I wanted to ask you who your favorite character is. Oh man. I think for me, it's Mr. Orange. I think it goes back to what you're oh. saying about his performance. Uh, I really just love the way he plays his his whole character. Even little flashback scene when he's trying to nail down the commode, you know, story, and you're watching him kind of work through it, and he's getting confident. Uh, and now he's finally got all their attention. He's in the club, and he's telling the story, and he's just shooting it off, like you know, having to answer questions on the fly the way. Did he prepare right? Because now he's answering that question of uh, uh, what do you get? What do you get thrown in for? Oh, I, no, this dude, I don't know. It's like tickets. He got pulled over and they found warrants on him and he gets sent to lock up. Anyway, back to my story. Right. He takes it like it's just clicking along um, and seeing that contrast with him as a dying man, pale flush and uh, his voice pitches up and uh, it's just beautiful, beautiful work. And Tim Roth is just a an incredible actor. Um, yeah. And so I think Mr. Orange is probably my favorite. Uh, what about you? Uh, he's, he's my favorite, but I think that my fa the best written one Ooh. is, is Buscemi. Yeah. Mr. Pink. For sure. Mr. Pink. A hundred percent. I mean, if for no other reason, his interactions with Joe, because he's this, he's this like, I don't, you know, F you and I do it my way and I don't tip and, and why, you know, why pink pink is for, 
girls or whatever. <laughs> and then he just gets put in his place, both like every single time. He's such a little weasel, right? He's a, a complaining, whining little baby. You know, he at, at the, in the diner, he won't tip. He doesn't like it, whatever. And Joe's like, give me your GD dollar, you know? And he's like, fine, but I don't like it. And then when he complains about being Mr. Pink, he's like, you're Mr. Pink. He's like, okay, okay, all right. You know, he backs down like a little wuss every time. And then at the end, he's the only one, he's the only one that lives. And the little weasel goes out and he like takes the diamonds and stuff. And it's just, it, well, he doesn't really live. I don't think, I think he probably ends up dying. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask if we can hear him dying off, off screen. I forgot to really tune in for it because I was so busy watching uh, Mr. Orange and Mr. White. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think he dies because you hear a lot of gunshots and, and screeching and nice. and stuff. So uh, yeah. I think he gets shot. Yeah. Another yeah. off screen uh, death. Another off screen death. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so he gets his in the end. I think, I think, you know, they all do. Really. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, good, good answer though. I, I think you're right though. I think my favorite character yeah. is Mr. Orange. But I agree sure. with you as well. Mr. Pink is incredibly well-written because it's all <laughs> very consistent in keeping uh, with who he is as a, as a character. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that he would also start bitching about how the heist went wrong and connecting dots to someone betrayed <laughs> us because uh, he's just kind of a complainer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. That's what I'm saying. He's like a whiny little, little baby yeah, all the time. Little, I don't know. It's not me. I know it's not me. It could be you. Is it you? I don't know. It could be him. Like, whatever. Anyway, yeah. I know it's not me. <laughs> so good. Nice. Yeah. Um, what are you going to recommend this week? So this week, uh, it's not a, I wanted to recommend another Tarantino film, but I decided, uh, as I was looking through, um, I've recommended a lot of his films already, so <laughs> probably going to just stay away from a little bit. I'm going to recommend Sin City. Um, I remember, uh, the first time I saw it, I, I thought, what is this? I've never, I'd never seen anything like it and, and it was confusing, but entertaining, but you know, didn't know if I liked it or not, but on a second viewing, I, I think it's, it's just brilliant in the way that it was put together and like uh, i don't know don't think it could have been made at any other time you know than when it was made so yeah sin city nice i'm gonna recommend a short little film called run lola run um uh, pretty oh, sure yeah. it's a german film but don't quote me i haven't watched it in a while uh but it came out in the late 90s and it kind of plays in the same creative sandbox where we're gonna do a lot with very little they took, uh, and really it's kind of the movie you're best served by just hitting play because it takes you on such a weird journey that you don't know what's happening for a few minutes. Um, and then when it finally clicks, you're like, oh, this is interesting. Where are they going with this? Yeah. And so I'll, in fact, I'll just leave it there. Uh, check out Run Lola Run. I'm sure it's got to be streaming somewhere, um, but it's just a really clever, uh, well-crafted 80-minute shorty like just just fantastic yeah and so this week we do have uh, an art spotlight this is going to me <laughs> yay uh kind of uh it's it's a vr film um technically a 360 film uh shot in 360 uh but best experienced in a headset uh it's called reservoir broads uh, it's the opening scene of reservoir dogs uh, where they're all at breakfast in the diner um and you have that whole weird conversation right tarantino uh mr brown tells a story about madonna's like a virgin um you have all this weird banter back and forth and i i'm just so happy we we cast uh, a bunch of older women 
to to take on all these roles and they're so good they're all dressed up in their same clothes right they're all decked out um and even uh we called her nice guy nice, nice gal Edie. um like she's in a a, a what do you call it? Tracksuit. Um, and it's, it's so good. I, she's one of my favorites. Uh, uh, Linda, um, that whole cast was just a pleasure to work with. We worked for like months on this thing. Like we spent six weeks, uh, just like Saturday mornings, we'd get together all whatever, eight of us and sit around the table working through the script piece by piece and treating it like a, a stage play. Right. Cause in, in VR, there are no edits. So this was the first thing we had to figure out was how do we make this thing and still make it feel right? Because the nice thing about the the way Tarantino shot it was he could cut best takes, he could cut to a close-up. And so whenever you get into this little back and forth between Mr. White and Joe about the the book, you know, they can cut to that angle. And so, but then they can also cut around the table when so-and-so is arguing with so-and-so. Like you can intercut that. Um, and then they have this nice, beautiful round the table shot as kind of a master so that no matter what's happening, we can cut around and, and have coverage. Of course, I don't get to do that. And so I had to sit and think about where do I place everyone around the table and where do I place the camera in relation to them? Because ultimately the user is going to inhabit wherever the camera is and that's going to be your perspective. And so I wanted it to feel like you're you're engaged at the table so that if an argument breaks out, uh, you're looking to your left and you're looking to your right. I want to maximize that. But I also want to make sure that whenever some of these longer conversations happen, you're not just whipping your head back and forth across the table. Mm-hmm. So I had to really sit and think about what character is going to be sitting where and how is that going to impact the conversation at the table um, in, a, in a way that keeps everything fluid but not stagnant. And it's a long piece. It's like an eight minute film, which is unusually long for a VR film without edits. Cause even with VR, you might want to sit around 30 to 90 seconds on average in a scene before cutting to a new scene. Um, and so we definitely pushed it. Um, and you know, you can make an argument that, you know, we went too long, but we had the problem of, well, do you edit Tarantino? Uh, no, uh, I think I made two small changes in the script. One was the the comment where he's like, uh, "What's good service?" Where they take you out back and uh, take you in, in oh, the other yeah. room and suck your dick. Uh, and we we're like, uh, "We think it'll be funnier if you insert you know, the p word instead." Mm-hmm. Um, and so having her say that felt more funny because we debated like her saying "dick" is still kind of funny, uh, but we're like, "It's funny, but it's not raunchy." And we want raunchy, yeah. don't we? And there, we were all like, "Yeah, I think we do." And so uh, there was. Oh, a great- these are great. These are great actresses, <laughs> actors. Whatever. Uh, did you end up uh, getting a chance to watch it in your headset? I did. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved every bit of it. I loved every bit of it. It really got me in the mood to watch the actual. Film. Oh, did it? I was like, "Oh, I can't wait to go watch this." Yeah. No, it was really a lot of fun. Really funny. Uh, entertaining. I, to your point, I didn't feel like I was whipping my head around all the time. You know, there were some times I was like, wait, who's talking, who's talking? Oh, there she is. You know, but it wasn't, it wasn't crazy like that. It was just, uh, um, really enjoyable, you know? Yeah. We were hoping to do a spatial mix and I think we just, we didn't have it, uh, quite set up strong oh, right. enough for it. And so, um, mm-hmm. but otherwise, yeah, you know, it, it was really fun just working with all those women. They're incredibly talented. I hope I get to work with them all again. And so to that point, 
this isn't really an art spotlight for me. It's for them. Go check it out for them, especially if you have a headset. If you have a headset, put it on, go to YouTube and just Google Reservoir Broads. And what's funny is the women actually wanted to call it Reservoir Bitches, you know, for the the play on dog. Um, And we debated I wanted to do it because they wanted to do it, but ultimately the rest of the, most of the people behind the camera were dudes and were, they're all like, ah, I can't, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to feel like people are looking at me like, wow, bro, really? <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. Um, but all the women on the project were, uh, pretty gung ho about it, which was my read on it. Uh, and yeah, we ultimately said, you know what, broads safer, uh, has a kind of phonetic similarity to dogs and uh, gets it all across. And so, yeah, went with <laughs> went the safe route. Uh, I like it. Tarantino would have went bitches for sure, but of course, uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, but yeah, check that out. That would mean a lot to me. Um, it should be available now. Uh, it's Thanksgiving week as when this is coming out, and so that that feels appropriate. It feels like a fun holiday, like uh, goof, right? Just have fun, watch these incredible actors uh, take jabs at each other and say some really outrageous, raunchy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it, man. Yeah, no, it's great work. Awesome. Great work. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, so you'll find a, a link to that in the show notes as well. And yeah, stay tuned for next week. We go back in time once more and we'll see one of Scorsese's early films with Taxi Driver. Uh, so we'll see what Travis Bickle is up to. Uh, as well as whoever else, I think uh, Jodie Foster is in there. I think she's like 14. Um, mm-hmm. So like it's a really young Jodie Foster. Uh, so yeah, check that out. Uh, and we'll we'll be back next week to discuss that. And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget, drop us a review, subscribe, leave us a note. Uh, if there's something you want us to, to talk about. And you can leave a note on this episode at thepestlepodcast.com slash Reservoir Dogs. And our quote of the day is from David Mamet. You've got to stand being bad if you want to be a writer, because if you don't, you're never going to write anything good. That's brilliant. You got to be able to sit there in it. Yeah, that's rough. Like if if you're a writer and you've never written something that you're like, oh, man, that just did not hit the mark. Then you're not really a writer. (laughs) Like I don't care who you are. You've written something that you're like, "Mm, that was a learning experience, and and I'm okay with that. Uh, (laughs) I've certainly got plenty of those, and I'm sure I will still. Like there's, you never really stop writing bad stuff. Uh, You just get better at recognizing how it could be better, Um, and and you go through that process. But I think that's really pertinent for this film. For one, David Mamet, pretty well known uh, stage, you know, play. Uh, right playwright and he in this film reservoir dogs feels like a a play right it feels like we're a lot of the way it's shot even feels like a play when we're in the warehouse a lot of these really wide shots um and the actors just kind of roam free doing their own thing so it, it really embodies it but also this isn't really from what i understand tarantino had another film that he made and i i know edgar wright has the same thing where he made a film and he's like, this is terrible. I'm not showing this to anyone. And Tarantino, I want to say did the same thing that, uh, I don't know if it was a film or just a short film. Um, if it's a feature or short, but my best friend's birthday, uh, is a, is a film that he made that he's like, this is terrible. I'm not letting anyone <laughs> like watch this. I'm, I'm burning it in a fire. Uh, and so 
whether that's truth or myth, I'm not entirely clear on, but it's a process writing, getting better at writing, getting better at whatever you're doing. It's iterative, right? Get your repetitions in. Yes. Your early stuff is going to suck. And we reference, uh, Ira glass all the time, right? The gap you, you have a vision in your head. Just be faithful to it mm -hmm. and be kind to yourself. Cause yeah, you suck right now. Admit it. First of all, don't act like you don't <laughs> own, own it, it. <laughs> but keep going, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it gets better. Usually everything gets better. Um, eventually also everything gets worse uh, because there's death at the end of the road, but in between things get better. <laughs> <laughs> Do it for not, but not for too long. That's right. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, and to this quote, I mean, you know, like you've got to love your bad guys, right? You've got to love your villains because you got to be, you got to be faithful to them as well because they have motivations. And if you're the, the best villains in any, in all these, these great stories, like they had to be written from a place of love, of, of understanding of, of empathy, right? From even if from no one else, from the writer, hmm. right? You as a writer writing Thanos, you as a writer writing, I mean, anybody, yeah. uh, you know, anybody, anybody from this movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> from Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> You've got to, like, where are they coming from? What is their motivation? Why are they how they are? Like, what is, what drives them? And then being out, you have to be able to live in that space and be able to put words on a page that honor that, or else it will be fake and it will be flat. And then your hero won't feel as strong, hmm. right? Yeah. It won't be as monumental of a task to defeat this villain or as, as uh, wonderful of a, of a feeling for the viewer hmm. if we don't identify uh, with the villain, right? That, some of the best movies are when you understand the motivation of the bad guy, right? So, so at least for me, like that, yeah. it, it like completely makes sense. Oh, I totally know why this guy would do this or this woman would do that. I like, I can feel that although it's terrible, right? Oh, but they're so strong because of their motivation, right? Because of how they got to where they're at. But if we don't know that, then we don't feel their strength. And so it's not as difficult of a, of a to overcome them. So yeah, it's a great, what wow. A I mean, I, some of the best quotes or best sayings or whatever are when people say things that you believe and understand already, but in a way that you've never heard before. And this is definitely one of those. Right? Yeah, that's such a I because your perspective on the quote never occurred to me uh, that when he says you've got to stand being bad if you want to be a writer. It only occurred to me in context of writing bad stuff, not writing bad people. Right. And you're absolutely right. You do have to suck it up and imagine that bad people aren't always bad because evil exists and it's so dichotomous and so simple. They're evil because they like being evil. Well, maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe sometimes people steal because they're they're poor and they're hungry. Are all thieves evil now? Uh, well, right. They're human, so maybe there, maybe there's more layers there. If you if you can stand uh, empathizing with someone who lives life differently from you um, and has had different experiences, nicely yeah. done, man. It's like it's like uh, Doctor Brandon Interstellar mm. is the lion evil because it rips a gazelle to shreds, right? 
It's just nature. Not necessarily. It's got to survive. It's got to feed its family. Like, yeah. it's got to do what it's got to do. Well, I mean, you know, uh, everybody's complex, and you have to honor that. And, 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 and you have to be able to, as a writer, live in that space and be okay with that. Yeah. And that's probably why it's difficult for... Uh, for people to like Tarantino is the writer of Django right. Tarantino <laughs> is the writer of 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 Reservoir Dogs so we we know he chose to put those words in there yeah the n-word in there all the time like that's his decision he chose that right so we hold him accountable to that because it's he sits down and he says okay I'm gonna I'm going to stand this yeah and you're like how can you stand that as a writer you know how can you stand that? What What is the mo- And then we have to ask ourselves, what is the motivation of saying that word? Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, to your point about like it being in this movie, there's no need. There's no need. <laughs> I 100 percent agree. And I felt felt, you know, icky about it. But it's still a great movie. It's still a great know? movie. And that's a really fresh perspective. Like, you know, the idea of him standing, standing it. That's my optimistic take that I'll, I'll walk away with because <laughs> yeah. it's much yeah. more fun to think of it in those terms than uh, to think of it more, I don't know, loosely, I guess. Yeah. 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 Anyway, great quote. Thanks. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Finally, we got to do this movie. <laughs> yeah. It's been, a, it's been a long time coming. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Hope you enjoyed it. If there's anything that you'd like to add, please uh, leave it in the comments um, and hit us up. Let us know if there's a, a film that we haven't done that you'd like to hear us do. Uh, make suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and join us next week. We'll be covering Taxi Driver. Until then, I am Todd. I am Wes. Go watch the movies.